Today's sermon comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. This passage can also be found in your pew Bible on page 84 of the New Testament. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and third married her. And so, in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die any more because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. The word of the Lord. Many years ago, when I was a youth minister, I tried really hard to crack this nut in my youth group. He was a silly guy, a sweet kid, but so quiet and introverted, he would not talk to me. I found out he had a great love for chess. In fact, he was in two chess clubs, and he was a chess champion. I love chess. I don't know why. I'm not good at it. I know how the pieces move, but I've never really known how to have a, a nice strategic opening or some of the deeper history behind it. I've never really dug that deeply into it. So I thought this might be an opportunity for me to connect with the kid and also learn a game that I like a little bit more. I called him up. I said, I'm going to pick you up this afternoon. I'm going to bring you to the church office, and we're going to play chess. You're going to teach me. In the car, he did not speak two words to me. He just grunted. And then when we got inside of my office, he sat down, and he pulled out a travel chess board. It unrolled and had the material of an old mouse pad. Then he set up the chess pieces, and then he begins to speak. I'm going to open with a very famous 14th century gambit. Okay, go do that. I didn't know what gambit meant even. I mean, I just thought that was a cool word for strategy. In a gambit, you're often offering one of your pieces up as a trick. So he moves, and then I go, okay, it's my move. So I moved a pawn to one square, and he goes, you wouldn't make that move. I said, well, I just did. He goes, you shouldn't make that move. And then he began to show me how the pieces go. You know, listen, strategy in chess, 
That's a really clever and cool thing. But strategy or outmaneuvering people in the game of life, well, to me, that's something different. And thinking in those terms, I get overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I'm loath to find myself in an argumentative trap. Have you ever been in one? Somebody asks you to account for something or to provide an answer. There are parameters for the answer they expect, but they are unspoken parameters. And what's worse, you have to come up with the answer to the question on the spot. Oh, I just don't like that. If you're like me, and I assume some of you are, you, make, you have better answers to those questions, not in the moment, but maybe on the drive home or when you're showering your hair or when you're laying down to sleep. You think to yourself, that, oh, I wish I had said this. In our story this morning, Jesus has been encountering group after group after group who's asking questions, sometimes trying to trick him, and in this case, definitely so. Parameters are not spoken, but he is set to be trapped. Now, I know that can make us a little unnerved, even in the pews today, especially when we're asked really important questions about life and afterlife and things. But let me, let me just caution you and make you feel a little comfortable. I think the beauty of our religion is that we're not really called to have a knee-jerk response to every question. I think the shape of our faith actually is that we mull over and wrestle with the questions, letting them work themselves out in our hearts. So let's breathe deeply and mull over the trap set for Jesus and be thankful it's not set for us. Here's the scene. Jesus has been answering questions this way and that to this group and that, and now a group of Sadducees come to ask him a question. We know much more about the Pharisees in the church. Pharisees were often opponents of Jesus in the gospel, but the Pharisees in this case were also sort of opponents of the Sadducees. Generally speaking, Sadducees distinguished themselves because they followed mostly the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, what we call the Old Testament, whereas the Pharisees also read the Psalms and the prophets like we read in our Old Testament now. Another distinguishing marker, at least about this group of Sadducees, is that they, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in a resurrection. They believe that life and death is this and all there is, that the nowness of life is important, and that justice must be done now, for there's no other time, there's no other age to enact justice. So all of God's justice must address the here and the now. It's pretty clear if you read Luke from the beginning to the very end that St. Luke has a different feeling, and so does Christ. They rather side with the theology of the Pharisees. This isn't all there is. This age isn't the only one. And God's justice is not bound by one age alone. It's interesting if you're thinking about it from Luke's perspective. When is he writing this? Well, he's writing this after Rome has brutally murdered Jesus and after Rome has brutally marched into the city of Jerusalem killing hundreds of thousands of Jews and tearing the temple down. It would be hard for Luke and people like him in his time to think that God could enact justice in this age alone 
with so many having already suffered and died. Luke, like Jesus, even like the Pharisees, thinks that there's another age, an age of resurrection, an age where God's justice will reign. Anyway, the Sadducees came to argue, so they set a trap. It's a trap based on what they called Leverite marriage, which is a hallmark of an old patriarchal system practiced in the Old Testament days, which spans a lot of time, and probably not practiced by the time of Jesus, but nevertheless was in cultural memory. Leverite marriage was based on the notion that females did not have very much agency for themselves. A daughter was indeed an object or a piece of property of her father, and when she was given in marriage, she was handed over now to belong to her husband as property. Now, I bet the first prayer that a young newly wed woman would be is this, God, give me a son. Because when your older husband undoubtedly widowed you, you would hope that you would have a male son to take care of you. Leverite marriage extended into the family. If you married a man and he passed on and didn't give you children, you were supposed to marry his brother. Even if he was already married, he was to take you into his home, and hopefully he was to give you a child so that you could be taken care of. When I think about the mechanics of Leverite marriage, I think about the Music City Miracle. For you NFL football fans, you'll remember that game where the Tennessee Titans were playing the Buffalo Bills. It was right at the end of the game. Buffalo was up by a few points. There was only 16 seconds left on the clock. I think Buffalo had the chance to either like run a play or kick the ball. They decided to do the prudent thing, kick the ball way down the field. There was no way the Titans were coming back. But there under the ball was one of the Titan players, and he grasped the pigskin into his arms, took two steps, and he pitched it to another player on his team who grabbed it and went another two steps opening his body to the sideline, and then he passed the, the ball to the player on the sideline who was then able to run it all the way to the end zone, hence Music City Miracle. It's a crass analogy for a crass institution. I think of that ball being passed to men after man after man. I think of Leverite marriage where a woman could be passed to belong to man after man after man. We should bristle about that. I'm bristling too. That's not beautiful. It doesn't feel right to me. Does it? I can tell it doesn't feel right to you. But let me assure you that there is supposed to be mercy here. This is supposed to be about mercy. For in a world where women were less than second class and couldn't own anything, this was a safeguard so that they could be cared for. You might say that this entire cultural tradition was, was predicated on good intentions, and like so many good intentions, they're led by a purpose. But when humans get their hands on purpose, so often we let those devolve into just a set of rules. So here's the trap that the Sadducees lay before Jesus. It's a thought experiment. Uh, Jesus, 
about this resurrection business. I got one for you. Suppose a woman marries a man. They have no kids. The man dies. Then she marries his brother, and they have no kids, and he dies, and then the other brother, and then so on and so on and so on until she has married seven brothers. So if this resurrection business is really true, who will she be married to? That's a good question. That's a good question. Perhaps she's married to the first husband. Perhaps it's lady's choice. <laughs> Not in a patriarchal society, I'm sorry to say. You see, the Sadducees don't understand something about the resurrection, at least the way Jesus understands it. The resurrection age is all about how broken things can be remade, restored, and glorified by God. It's elsewhere in the New Testament, out of the mouth of our Savior, we hear the phrase, Behold, I make all things new. That's what the resurrection is about. And if that's the case, then the resurrection is about taking a broken world, and if the world is broken, then it is filled with injustice. Therefore, resurrection age of this world will be one where justice of God reigns supreme, or where God puts all the wrong things right. Now, I know this is a jarring passage. It jars me, because Jesus says, in answering the Sadducees that in his age, in the age that we're living in and still living in, people marry and are given in marriage. But in the age to come, if you're worthy enough to make that resurrection age, none will be married or given in marriage. We'll be more like the angels. We won't die, and so on. And so it's hard because a, a lot of you are like me. You're a helpless romantic. And maybe you're blessed like I am to have been to marry somebody so much better than yourself. I call my wife my partner in redemption. I like being married to her. I hope that you like being married to who you're married with. And if and you hear these words, it, it might make you shudder to think that you're not married in the resurrection. Of course, the opposite is true. If you're in a bad marriage to a bad man, maybe this is hope. But let's go with the more positive for a moment. I am not a cynic. I'm cheesy, and I'm romantic. And theologically, I believe in Christian marriage. Absolutely, I do. Peachtree Christian Church believes in Christian marriage. In our 94 history, we have um, officiated over 9,000-plus weddings here. It's been a part of our DNA to help people get started in Christian marriage. I think it's part of God's redemptive scheme, frankly. But let me say something further. I don't think the Sadducees have in mind your intimacy or mine. I don't think they're thinking about my fellowship with my helpmate or yours. I don't think they're talking about the companionship that we foster in Christian marriage. I think they're talking about Leverite marriage. They're talking about a world where women were always the property of men. And if you didn't catch the words, Jesus says, none will be married or given in marriage. 
Did you catch it? In the age of resurrection, in the age to come, in the age of justice, no one will be handed over as an object for somebody else in marriage or any other institution you can imagine. If we focus in on that, there is freedom. But I can tell, like some of you, I too, I still bristling over this not being married part. I, I just love my wife. And if that's you, I'm happy for you, but let me say this. I have no real comfort. The great tradition of our faith from the beginning to now really doesn't have a great answer to this text. Some people say it's absolute that in the age to come, there is no marriage, there's no need of it. Uh, there's a logic here that marriage produces children, and since we will live without death, we don't need that relationship to produce children. Some have said, well, we're going to be like the angels, and the angels are uh, asexual. And some said, that's not true. They are. And there's been an argument throughout the entirety of the tradition of Scripture but, and in Christianity. But let me say, maybe none of that's really the point. Perhaps the real thing, the main thing that we should focus on here is justice. All throughout Luke's gospel, he is showing us how the gospel comes into the world and takes those who are lowly, oppressed, stepped on and over, overlooked, disenfranchised, and forgotten, and how these people will be lifted up and exalted, and how the high and the mighty and the despotic will be brought low. And throughout human history, friends, the truth of the matter is women have been treated less than they should. It has been an ugly history for women. We've come a long way. Things are much better than in times past. I think in thinking about Leverite marriage proves it. I, I do want us to caution. We, we haven't gone far enough. Every day we can debate gender pay gap. Every day I hear of sexual harassment and the population that affects more than most women. And I'm tired. I'm just tired of hearing about unwanted pregnancies with a focus only on the woman. And perhaps this is too close to home, but maternity leave in our country is just... It doesn't have a good eye for family. There are issues. I just listed a few, and frankly, I feel out of my depth. I am not a woman. I'm a man. And what am I to say to you except for what I've heard and what I've seen? And I can tell you this. I have lived in a world that hasn't been good to women. More to come. But scriptures like this tell me there's more to come. Scriptures like this tell me that there is an age coming where this broken reality that we live in, and it, it's not just with men or women, it's with any relationship that's out of whack or any world where persons are relegated to things or objects. There's a world to come where those broken things will be healed and glorified by God. It occurs to me that this should give us hope. All of us, male and female alike. Two of us hasn't been devalued. 
you know, as I think about live right marriage, I think about how important it was for a young woman to, to find a man. <laughs> I'm a father of daughters, by the way. I hate that story. But it also reminds me of how important it would be in their minds to be able to have children. There are people who cannot have children. And in the ancient world, they were given names. That hardship, that tenderness is overcome in the age to come because we are not reducible to what we can produce or reproduce. We have value, period. I speak with fear and trembling because I know not how this feels firsthand, but I spoke with a woman once, and we went through the things you go through in conversation. What's the first thing you say to somebody when you meet them? What do you do? The second thing, perhaps, are you married? The third thing, do you have kids? I asked a woman this, and immediately she began to weep and cover her face for me, and I, I felt horrible. I don't want to make people cry. And so I began falling all over myself to apologize and to explain myself, and that's a pathology I have. I need to be understood, and so I'm falling all over myself trying to, and, and she's crying, and she says, no, 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 no. Just this past week, went to the doctor, and I find that, found out we could not have children. And I just said, I'm so sorry. And I think God gave me the wisdom in that moment to just not say anything else, you know. And then she said something that I cannot understand from living it, but I can hear it and feel it. She said, and I feel like it means I'm broken as a woman. This is real. We carry our burdens. A text like this reminds us that there's a world coming when we're not reducible to what society thinks we're reducible to, that we are not only for roles assigned to us by others or even our own imaginations, that we're not reducible to the fairy tales we've told ourselves and been told. We have value, and what has been diminished will be uplifted. What has been overlooked will be remembered, and what has not had strength will have power. Scripture like this tells me something. It tells me like there's something inside each and every one of us that is real, that isn't done yet. Just like a, an oak tree was once an acorn, in that acorn is something of that tree. And my friends, the resurrection age tells us that there's something better inside of us that will live there. There's something in us of value and worth that nobody can judge. There is a love in our hearts for others that isn't based on any outside determining factors. It's just based on humanity and personhood and love. Friends, the thing about our religion is it says that though that's the reality of the age to come, through the eyes of Christ we see it and we begin living its reality right now. 